Welcome to Grace. Why don't you grab your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to the passage that Jay began with, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now, you may be wondering, where in the world is Ecclesiastes, and how can I find it? If you open up your Bible pretty much right to the middle, you will most likely see the book of Psalms, a rather large book. If you find Psalms, just keep on going. You'll see the book of Proverbs, and then after that, you will find uh, one of one of the the best wisdom books in the Bible, the, the book of Ecclesiastes. And we will be in chapter 2, uh, just as we read this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, as we continue on with our sermon series, Sipping Salt Water, Finding Lasting uh, Joy, Finding Lasting Joy in a Thirsty World. Uh, this morning, we will be looking at the salt water, the uh, idol, if you will, of pleasure, of pleasure, from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. So pray with me, please. Father, uh, it is good for us to be here. We're so very grateful that we can gather, that we can sing wonderful songs of your grace. You have loved us with a great love. You have demonstrated great mercy and great kindness towards us in sending your Son, Jesus Christ. We celebrated both his life and his substitutionary death for our sins on the cross last week in his powerful resurrection over death, over sin, and over Satan as he triumphed over the grave, offering us eternal life and resurrection from the dead, if we would simply trust in what he did for us. We are incredibly grateful for this grace that you have demonstrated to us. And not only are we grateful for this grace, but Father, we want to seek after you and respond um, to your grace and be found in you alone. Father, this morning we come to a passage that is extremely helpful. We're very grateful for uh, Solomon and his writing to us that he underwent this grand experiment to see if all of these things, these pleasurable things um, that we uh, can enjoy, provide ultimate joy, ultimate and lasting satisfaction. And Lord, he concluded, as the psalmist did, that that is only found in a relationship with you. And so, Father, teach us from your word, we pray in Christ's name. And all of God's people said together, amen. So I'd like to begin our sermon this morning by playing a little game of what if, okay? A little game of what if. Let's just say that you have been chosen, you have been chosen, you get a phone call, and it's the University of California um, at Berkeley, Now, the University of California at Berkeley is the premier sociology school in the United States. And they call you up and they say to you, we want you to be a part of a study in personal satisfaction. And you say, okay, give me the details. And they say something like this. So for one year, you will be given anything you want. Yes, anything. Any possession, they say, that money can buy you can have. So if you want shoes, if you want clothes, if you want more houses or jewelry, if you want cars or sports equipment or machinery or tools, whatever it is that your heart desires, you may have it. Your interest probably is piqued, is it not? They say not only that, But you can build or create anything you want. Any project that you want to undertake is funded and resourced. So you want your own tennis court in the backyard? That's what I asked my mom and dad for when I was 12 for my birthday. I said, can I have a tennis court in the backyard? Guess what they said? No. They said no. You can have it if you want it. Want an in-house IMAX theater? It's on the docket. 
Would you like an arboretum in your backyard? It is a done deal, they say. Well, not only that, the deal gets better. In addition, you can have any uh, bodily service that you desire. So if you love massages, you can have them. If you want manicures, pedicures, tans, anything to pamper your body, you may have it. In addition to that, you can eat because we all like to eat, you can eat whatever you want, as much as you want, any time you want. So if you want your favorite restaurant to be open at 2 a.m., it will be open. You can have your favorite beverage on the tap. You're probably pretty interested at this point, are you not? But it gets better, if you will. You can have any form of entertainment that you can imagine. So if you want your favorite band live, then you can have it. If you want tickets to the Cubs game, or the Blackhawks game, or... What are that, is that other baseball team not south? The, the Cardinals. If you, want, if you want to go to the Cardinals game, you can have it. Not only that, but you can go anywhere your private jet will take you. So you want to go to a warm, sunny place, and who doesn't want to right now? Um, you can do it. Finally, you are permitted, they say, to enjoy any kind of sexual pleasure with anyone at any time. And after a year, they say, you will be questioned to determine if you have found lasting contentment and genuine joy and satisfaction. So, I want you to ponder that little experiment for a while. What do you think would be your conclusion at the end of such an experiment? What, what do you think would happen? Well, of course, this is fictitious, and really only a, a few in this world get to really find out what all of these things would be like. This morning, we are very fortunate because, guess what? We get to hear from one of them. We get to hear this morning from a man who put himself through such an experiment to find out if it would provide him lasting, meaningful joy. And we will hear his rather shocking conclusion. Who is that man? Well, maybe you've guessed it already. His name is King Solomon. He ruled over the nation of Israel uh, at the peak of its power and prestige. And this account that we find in Ecclesiastes, specifically Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we see that Solomon tested himself, he says. He wants to see if he can find lasting joy and meaning in life through pleasure, through seeking pleasure. In other words, he made pleasure his God. He made it his particular form of salt water, if you will. So let's begin by taking a look at the salt water of pleasure in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So he begins the chapter by uh, stating that he determined to test, to do a little experiment, to test the lasting merits of pleasure. Notice again verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. He says, I'm going to do an experiment. I'm the king. I have basically unlimited resources at my hand. Um, I'm going to see if pleasure will really, really make me 
happy in life. Now, back in chapter 1, he did this with wisdom. You can look in your Bible towards the end of chapter 1. He sort of ran a similar test in, in, in the pursuit of wisdom. And he said, "All it, it, it's vain, right? It's a chasing after the wind. So now in chapter 2, he says, well, I'm going to try not wisdom, but I'm going to try per, the pursuit of Pleasure. In fact, this word pleasure in the Hebrew shows up four times in these 11 verses. It shows us what his focus was, what, what the center of this experiment was. It was the, the, the seeking of pleasure, personal pleasure. But before he gives us the details of what this experiment looks like, he gives us the results, Right? Notice, if you will, uh, towards the end of verse 1. He says, I ran an experiment. I'm going to detail that experiment for you here in a moment. But before I do that, let me just tell you my conclusion. Let me just tell you what um, the end result of this little experiment was. Notice at the end of verse 1. But that also proved to be... Meaningless, one of the key words in the book of Ecclesiastes. It proved, he says, to be meaningless. And then he says in verse 2, laughter, I said, is madness. And, and here's a question. And what does pleasure, living for pleasure, what does it accomplish? What does it accomplish? What was his conclusion? I'm going to do a little experiment. I'm going to tell you about it. But what was his conclusion? Well, it's summed up really in the Hebrew word, meaningless. But this also proved to be meaningless. Now, this word in Hebrew describes uh, elsewhere a temporary mist or a vapor, right? So think, think of boiling water, right? You're boiling water, and what do you see? Eventually, it's, it starts to steam, right? There's a vapor that is formed. Um, but eventually, that vapor does what? It disappears, right? It's temporary, right? It's there today, and it's gone tomorrow. Friends, that's what Solomon says. A life lived in the pursuit of pleasure is like. It's momentarily satisfying, but it is not enduring, is what he says. And then he asks this question, what does pleasure accomplish ultimately? See, his unspoken yet assumed answer is that it doesn't provide anything that lasts. It has momentary value. It relieves us from our boredom and our grief. It gives us a temporary feeling of of pleasure and euphoria. But it yields, he says, ultimately a hollow life if you set your heart on it. Next, take a look at verse 3 in your text. Starting in verse 3 and ending in verse 10... Solomon essentially lays out his experiment, right? He lays out this experiment that he undertook, that he found ultimately to be fleeting or meaningless. And friends, as we look through this little test, this little experiment, we need to be asking ourselves, am I pursuing these things uh, to, to find ultimate pleasure? Is, are these some of the things that I find myself living for? Does this look like my life? Am I, am I putting my, my happiness stock, if you will, in them? Four categories of things. Notice the first. We'll call it the pleasure of indulgence in verse 3. The pleasure of indulgence. So he begins with his experiment. He says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing 
folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. In other words, I did this. I tried to cheer myself with wine and embrace folly intentionally. This is part of the experiment, he says. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. Now the phrase wine and embracing folly leads me to believe that Solomon is speaking of alcohol-induced behavior. And likely alcohol-induced sinful behavior. See this word folly often in the Old Testament. It describes a sort of frivolous, uncontrolled behavior. And shocker of shockers, it's often linked to alcohol abuse. No duh, right? So, so just think in your mind sort of college frat party, right? Just alcohol is flowing, uncontrolled behavior, the pursuit of folly. That's what Solomon is talking about. He said, I tried that. I tried that. And it didn't really work. So friends, we need to ask ourselves, how might we be living for the pleasure of bodily indulgence? Maybe it's overeating consistently. We can't say no to our stomach. We seek to maximize the pleasure that we get from every bite, from every dish, and from every dessert. Maybe it's simply the, the comfort or, or the pleasure that the leather couch provides and If we're honest, maybe we linger there a bit too long. Maybe it's the abuse of alcohol, as it was here in Solomon's case. Um, The feeling uh, or the experience of, of, uh, of not being able to say no to that substance. Here's a question I want us to ponder as we think about the pleasure of indulgence, the saltwater flavor of indulgence. Let's ponder this question. What feeling or experience... Do I have trouble saying no to? What feeling or experience do I have trouble saying no to or have trouble quitting when I should? I think that's a a, a penetrating question. And when we honestly answer that question, it may reveal what our particular flavor of of the pleasure of indulgence may be. But he, he goes on. He says, I tried the pleasure of indulgence. And if you if you look at verses four through six. He says he also tried the pleasure of achievement, if you will. Um, Notice the verbs. Notice the verbs in verses 4 through 6. Read with me, if you will, in your text. Solomon says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Now, did you notice the verbs? I tried to emphasize them, right? What did he say he was doing? I undertook. I built. I made, right? Friends, these are verbs of achievement, are they not? These are verbs of achievement. In fact, Solomon, with all the creative resources at his disposal, history and the Bible teaches us, undertook great projects, massive building projects, including, of course, the temple, which his father kind of set up for him, if you will. The temple took seven years to build and roughly 153,000 workers, but that was nothing compared to his own personal home. You want to know how long it took for him to build his own personal home? 13 years, 13 years, and it was spectacular. 
Sometimes I wonder if building my own personal home is going to take 13 years. You know, I understand that. Um, he did whatever he wanted. He achieved all sorts of things, he said. And this was by design. He wanted to do this. It was a part of the test, he says. So friend, how might we be living for the pleasure of achievement? Maybe it's the achievement of expanding our business or beating our competitors. Maybe it's the achievement of having the best-dressed kids in all of Cisna Park or the smartest kids in all of the school. Maybe it's the achievement of being popular or having, uh, being accepted from a particular group of people in town or in the church. See, here's the question I want us to ponder. To see if the pleasure of achievement might have an idolatrous hold in our hearts. Here's the question. What goal or dream, if realized, if it happened, what goal or dream, if realized, do you think would make you content or satisfied? In other words, if this, if I reached this goal, if this actually came about, if I achieved this, then I would be content. Then all would be good. Friends, if we think that way about a goal, then we might be in the throngs of an idol. Not only did Solomon try out, if you will, the the pleasure of indulgence and achievement. But take a look at verses 7 and 8. The pleasure of possessions. Notice the verbs again. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also, what's the verb? Owned. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. Friends, these are verbs of uh, acquisition, are they not? These are verbs of possession, right? I bought, I owned, I amassed, I acquired. Friends, we easily sip from this salt water, do we not? The pleasure of owning things, of having possessions, and it becomes our heart's goal and desire. See, Solomon had it all, right? From servants to silver to sex. He had it all at his fingertips. Stories told of a, of a very wealthy, rich businessman and uh, he was at a lake, and he was disturbed to see a, a fisherman sitting there lazily beside his boat. Why aren't you out there fishing? He asked the fisherman. The response, well, because I've caught enough fish for today. Why don't you go catch more fish than you need? The rich businessman asked. In response, well, why would I do that? And the businessman replied, well, you could earn more money. And you could buy a bigger and a better boat so you could go deeper. And then you could catch more fish. And then you could purchase better nets. You could catch even more fish and you could make more money. Soon, you would have a whole fleet of boats and you would be rich like me. To which the fisherman then replied, Well, if all of that happened, then what would I do? The man said, Well, you could sit down and enjoy life. To which the fisherman replied, What do you think I'm doing right now? (laughs) 
Friends, how might me and you, like the businessmen here, be living for the pleasure of possessions? Friends, we live in America, do we not? We live in a world where uh, the possibility, uh, possibilities of possession, idolatry, runs rampant, right? I mean, it's true. It could be clothes, it could be toys, it could be cars, it could be houses, it could be shoes, it could be gadgets, it could be entertainment choices, it could be sexual possessions, it could be a whole host of things that you and I, as very wealthy Americans, can enjoy. Here's the question that I want us to ponder. The heart question is this. What is it that you feel like you can never have too much of? Just think about that. What is it that you feel like, I can never have too much of this? Here's an opposite question. What do you feel like you never have enough of? Same question, but the opposite. See, the answer may reveal that uh, we are caught in the throngs of this particular idol, the pleasure of, of possession. Solomon said, I tried it. Here's everything that I amassed for myself. But there was one more flavor in verse 9, if you'll look at your text. It's the pleasure of prestige. It's the pleasure of prestige was the final ingredient to Solomon's experiment. Take a look at verse 9. He says, I became greater by far. Let those words just sink in a second. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this... My wisdom stayed with me. See, he he ends his brief tour of his pursuit of pleasure by saying, Listen, I uh, was the most prestigious king in all of Israel, and I was the most prestigious person in the history of the nation of Israel. Friends, um, how might we be sipping on the salt water of the pleasure of prestige? Here's a question for us to ponder. If I just became this, if I just became this, or if I was known for that, then I would be content. If people just would acknowledge that I was this, that I was that, then we would be content. It reveals the the idol of the pleasure of prestige. So Solomon He says, this is the experiment that I undertook, right? This was my grand experiment. And then he reminds us once again about the saltwater nature of the idol of pleasure, living for pleasure, how it satisfies momentarily, but it leaves us more spiritually dehydrated than ever before. Notice the conclusion that he gives us to the experiment in verses 10 and 11. This is amazing to me. Verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Friends, just ponder that for a moment. Do you live life thinking that if I just do what I want and get what I want and can experience what I want, if I could just get everything my heart desired, then I'd really be happy then life would be meaningful and significant. Do you think that way? Do I think that way? Solomon said, I denied my eyes nothing. Anything my heart desired, I gave it to it. 
right? Friends, this is the American lie. We think that if we live that way, that we're going to be happy. And what does Solomon say? Keep reading. Yet, yet in verse 11, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, this experiment, and what I had toiled to achieve, what is, what is his conclusion, friends? Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Friends, he says, it didn't work for me. It, it didn't give me what I thought it would give me. It yielded Futility. Notice the language. Everything was meaningless. Notice this image, a chasing after the wind. It is a vivid image of frustrated futility, of pursuing something that is ultimately what? Uncatchable, right? Ultimately uncatchable. I had a dog in college, and he was a Cocker Spaniel, and he was a beautiful little dog. Um, and if you know anything about Cocker Spaniels, when they're born, typically, uh, they, they cut the tail off, right? So this little dog had a little nubbin, okay? That was his tail, a little nubbin about that big. And it wagged all the time because he was a happy dog. But occasionally, I find himself noticing it, and then he would begin to chase it, right? Um, some dogs that have longer tails can actually get their tail, but my dog had a little nubbin, so he could not, he could not reach it. Uh, but friends, it didn't stop him from trying, right? He tried and tried and tried and around and around to get that little nubbin, and he could not do it. It was frustrated futility. It was the pursuit of something that was ultimately uncatchable. Friends, that is what living for pleasure is like. That's what Solomon says. If you live for pleasure, that's what it's going to be like. Pastor Brian Bell hits it on the head when he says this, and I quote, When pleasure alone is the center of life, the results will ultimately be disappointing, disappointment and emptiness. Well, most of us are like Solomon. We, we sip on the flavor of the salt water of pleasure, but a rare few of us uh, actually sip on what I will call a related but opposite form, uh, flavor of salt water. So we've, we've seen the salt water of pleasure as a god, but I want us to look at the garbage, the salt water of Pain, the salt water of pain, that is treating pleasure as garbage. There is a, a monk, maybe you've heard of him, his picture, kind of a drawing, is bad drawing, is uh, on the screen behind me. His name is Martin Luther. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a pretty, pretty key guy in history. Now, he was, of course, the father of the Protestant Reformation, but before that, he served as a Catholic monk. And uh, he was, in his own writings, obsessed with his own sinfulness. It overwhelmed him. He understood the human heart, his human heart, and the depths of his sin. And he was obsessed not only with with his own sinfulness, but is in his attempt to rectify his own sinfulness with rigorous and painful penance. Right? He, was, he was a Catholic monk, and so he tried to alleviate the sin problem that he rightly identified in his heart by doing things to beat himself up. So, so he would work himself past exhaustion. He would literally faint in the fields from exhaustion. He would starve himself for days. He would sleep outside in the snow. And quite literally, uh, in his own words, he would beat himself unconscious. 
It's kind of crazy for us, but he took his sin seriously, and he took the religious system that he was in seriously. It's all he knew how to do. In fact, he said of his former life before he trusted in Christ, if a monk ever got to heaven by his monkery, it was I, right? I was the monkiest of monks, he said, uh, and he was. See, he thought he could earn salvation through penance and self-punishment through pain until he read the truth of the gospel in the book of Romans and the glorious gospel of forgiveness and grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Friends, likely none of us sip on such a strong salt water as he. I don't think any of us are doing that. But I may uh, suggest that we often, we, we can, we can sip on a weaker version of the salt water of pain uh, than Luther did. Steve Hopp in his book um, gives us some helpful self-examination questions here. He says this. He says, Do you compensate for your moral shortcomings by depriving yourself of pleasure, hoping that this will somehow make you right in God's eyes? He says, Are you uncomfortable when God blesses you with, with wealth or with nice things? He says, Are you proud of your suffering? Just ponder that a moment. Are you proud of your suffering? Do you ever look down on others who haven't suffered as much as you? He says, if you answer yes to any of these questions, then you're sipping the salt water, not of pleasure, but of of pain. Thankfully, there is a third way. There is a third way, not the way of pleasure, not the way of of pain, but there is a way that we can treat pleasure as a gift from God and enjoy it through chiefly enjoying the gift giver. So let's now close by taking a look at the living water of pleasure, both pleasure in God and the pleasures of this life. So here's the question, really, the question that we have to answer How can we keep pleasure in its place? How can we keep pleasure in its place, neither idolizing it nor demonizing it, but rightly enjoying it? How can we do that? May I suggest the answer to that question is this. We can do that if we enjoy the gift by enjoying the giver. I'll just say that again. I think we can do that if we enjoy the gift by or through enjoying the giver. And of course, I talk about God. So we can enjoy, friends, the good and the pleasurable gifts that God does give us in this life without idolizing them in our heart when and only when we first and foremost enjoy God. That's the remedy. He is the giver of these things. If you have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, turn with me to the New Testament book, so towards the end of your Bible, and flip until you find the book of First Timothy, if you will. You'll see the Gospels, you'll see Acts, you'll see Corinthians. Keep going until you find, uh, you'll get Philippians, Colossians, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, until you find the Timothys. And when you get to the Timothys, turn to chapter 6, if you will. First Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6. And we will be honing in on verse 17. I think what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, is um, this little nugget that I've shared with you. We enjoy the gift when we first enjoy the giver. I think we see that in this passage. Take a look. Paul writes uh, in the NIV here, Command those who are rich in this present world 
not to be arrogant, but to put their, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So here's what Paul says. Christians who have much to enjoy in this life, rich Christians, friends, that's me and that's you, okay? We live in America. That's me and that's you. We have much to enjoy in this life. We are rich Christians. He's talking to us, okay? Rich Christians who have much to enjoy are to put our hope, is the, the language, the word he used, to put our hope, to put our delight, to put our affections on what? On wealth or on God? What does he say? B. Yes, you're correct. To, to put it on God, clearly, right? So, we are to, in, in, in my words, we are to enjoy the giver. Our, our hope, our, our orientation, that which we chiefly desire and want is to be God, right? Enjoy the giver. The book of Psalms, which Jay read from uh, several verses from earlier, actually uses much stronger language than the language of hope. Uh, it, it speaks of delighting in, or, delighting in or finding pleasure in our relationship with God. C.S. Lewis speaks of the Psalms and how the Psalms uh, treat or portray God. And he says that, that, that the Psalms call God, quote, the all-satisfying object. In other words, in the book of Psalms, God is portrayed as that which is all-satisfying. And we, we saw that in the verses that we read earlier this morning, did we not? Like Psalm sixteen eleven, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy, where? In your presence. With eternal pleasures, where? At your right hand. Brothers and sisters, what I'm proposing is this. We have to fight fire with fire. We fight the fire of the temptation of the salt water of idolizing pleasure with the living water of superior pleasure in God. Pastor Driscoll puts it this way, and I quote, If you are an absolutely consistent, committed hedonist, that means you live for pleasure, that wants nothing but pleasure and joy and satisfaction, you will continue moving forward until you meet God, he says. Pleasure comes from God. God doesn't just give us pleasure. God is our pleasure. And that's what the psalmist is saying. God is our pleasure. So back to 1 Timothy 6, 17. How does Paul say a Christian who is rich in this present world and who puts their hope in God, how then can that Christian who longs for God first relate or treat his good and pleasurable gifts? Did you notice the very end of the verse? Take a look with me. Not to put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. And then he writes this, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Right? For our enjoyment. Pleasure is not bad. Idolizing pleasure is bad. Right? Idolizing pleasure is bad. If we enjoy the giver first, then and only then can we enjoy and not idolize his gifts. But friends, when we fail to enjoy the giver first, what, we, what do we do? We then idolize the gifts rather than worshiping and delighting in and enjoying the giver. 
So how can we keep the idol of pleasure in its place? By enjoying the gift. We enjoy the gift through enjoying the giver. Friends, I want us to think about this little experiment as we close. This grand experiment that Solomon undertook. Um, He uh, made all sorts of things. And it's ironic because in this passage, I would suggest to you that uh, Solomon was, I don't whether he recognized it or not, he was, in a sense, trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. In fact, uh, Pastor Keith Krell observes, quote, Solomon tried to create his own Garden of Eden. Just think about that a moment. He tried to create his own Garden of Eden. He says one of the reasons we love gardens is because man was first made in one. It is the only, it is the only place on earth that, that was complete, when then, he says, Adam and, and Adam and mankind was given the task of cultivating the rest of it. And he says this, gardens are an echo of home. So friends, what was Solomon doing in this grand design, in this experiment? He was trying to create his own Eden. Friends, let me pose, let me pose this. We do the same. We do the same. Not to the scale that he does, because we can't. Most of us. And if you can, talk with me afterwards, right? But I don't think any of us can do that kind of thing. Um, but we do in our own kind of way. We, we have vain attempts to recreate Eden. And friends, like Solomon's, they all fall short. It's because only the true garden of Eden can satisfy our soul. Only that place when we are right with mankind and when we are right with God can our hearts be ultimately satisfied. Friends, it's no um, shock that the Bible begins with a garden in which man was right with one another and right with God. And how's it, how does it end? Remember? In a garden. God recreates the heavens and the earth. And he creates this, this city. And it is, it is a garden-like city. Where, and what does he say? I will dwell amongst them. Right? God will be with them because that is our ultimate joy. That's what we were created for. That's what Christ redeemed us for. So friends, let me close with this. What gardens are you trying to make here on earth? What idolatrous pleasure is in your attempt and my attempt at recreating Eden? Whatever it may be, I want to close with this anonymous poem it speaks to us in our hearts. The poem simply says this, Christian, are you disappointed with the world and all around? Turn your eyes from earth to heaven where true joys can be found. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and reveal to us the idolatrous pleasures in our hearts and lives the places where we are really looking to find joy and satisfaction and meaning in your gifts rather than in you, the giver of the gifts. And help us, as Paul taught us, to put our hope in you so that we can then enjoy all of the good things that you've given us without idolizing them. We pray in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. See you next week, guys. Thanks.